and uh, I will confess that um, if you remember, if you were here last week, Sandra asked a question, and uh, I genuinely meant to get to looking into that this week, and it just did not happen, so I was doing some looking into it this afternoon uh, before service, and so we talked a little bit about it during the week, and I did rebuke her when we got home for asking a tough question in front of everyone, so I made sure I said, woman, Bible says keep silent in the churches. That's what the Bible says. And then I, when I got off the floor, I realized I probably wasn't the best thing to say. So, Okay, so uh, Sandra's question last week, and I'll summarize it basically. Uh, and we kind of went through this in Romans 11 so far. We're going to find ourselves, I believe, in verse 11, I think is where we're picking up. And so uh, the question she asked was, because the Bible talks about that God sent them uh, a blindness, a slumber. Uh, that word basically just means an insensitivity to God's word. They were, they were insensitive to the things of God. They couldn't really understand the things of God. They were kind of blind to the things of God um, because of their hearts. Their own hardness of heart led to them rejecting Christ, the nation of Israel. And because of that, God in agreement said, okay, fine, here, I'm going to send this slumber. I'm going to send this insensitivity and allow that to be uh, where you're at right now. And so she was asking, well, if if we harden our heart to God in, you know, in, in lack of faith or in rebellion, then why does God even go ahead and say, well, you've hardened your heart, so now I'm going to say your heart's hardened and I'm hardening your heart. Why, why the double hardening, I guess, is what we're saying. And so, uh, again, she even said, you know, we talked a little bit more about it today, and she said she did some looking into it. Couldn't really find too much of an answer based on other than what we were already saying last week. And so I did a little looking into it this afternoon. Um, I really didn't find any real I didn't really find where anyone asked that specific question. Um, there were some questions similar. One question was asked that I was reading about, and one article said, um, why does God harden hearts? That was one of the questions. And then the other question was, can God soften a hardened heart? And so not really the exact same question that Sandra was asking. Basically, if a heart is hard because of an individual's rejection and rebellion, why does God then go the kind of extra step and say, okay, yeah, your heart's hard? In the articles I was reading, uh, one was from a ministry I'm not familiar with. One was from Desiring God. Uh, and I think I saw another one from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, basically, we're saying the same things we've been saying. That the hardness of the heart starts with the individual. That it's like the example with Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh went through a few of the plagues, right? Before he, God said he hardened his heart. All those times through those plagues, Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, hardening his heart, rejecting, rejecting. I think it was after five plagues. Then God says, okay, your heart is hardened. So it was only after Pharaoh had gotten to a point of rejection that God said, I'm in agreement with this. Now, we don't know that Pharaoh ever turned in repentance and had his heart softened. We don't read that. Um, but one of the things that even I think it was Renee pointed out last week, we're going to get into tonight, that Israel's rejection is not actually permanent according to Romans 11. So what I w when I was reading and listening to some different people, they were saying that, that sometimes God hardens a heart that's already hardened and it stays that way until they die. They just die in their sin and rejection and rebellion. But sometimes in either scriptures we're going to see tonight or other examples where someone may say they just don't care and they, they basically are saying they've hardened their heart, but then maybe 10 years goes by, 12 years goes by, 15 years go by, and they end up coming to Christ. Whether we would say rededicating or whether they would just say, you know what, I wasn't even saved and now I'm getting saved. So there are examples like that where the hardening of the heart doesn't seem to be permanent, but other examples where maybe it is permanent. So again, I would also say when you read Romans 11, you're going to see there's a lot of talk of a warning. 
There's a lot of warning of those that are reading this to say, hey, listen, it could even be understood as saying, don't get to this point where you've hardened your heart so much that now you're insensitive to the things of God. You're blind. You don't even see these things. So it could have been Paul warning them, if you're on this road, make a different decision. Don't allow this to play out. So a few different takes on it, but again, not really that specific answer. So this week, by God's grace, if I can have time and remember, I will try to look more into that. But that's kind of just a summary of what we talked about to end last week. So any comments or thoughts on that? Has anyone else looked into this this week? Maybe after we talked about it and you said, I'm going to look into that and see. And you came up with some kind of a solution or a conclusion. Yes, Kathy. Sure. Um, but if you watch the, the movie Trojan Husband, he didn't be go into the waters of Israel, you know, take all the Israelites, so Pharaoh couldn't have had him. Right. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. That's what I was saying. Well, I'm saying we don't read anywhere before that happens that he repents. So, yes, yes. He kind of got a little wet before that. So, yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on that? I thought you were going to say Charlton, Charlton Heston's character was going to do some kind of a... I thought you were going to go that route, but you switched it up. I went to Pharaoh. That was great. <laughs> Anyone else? Any thoughts or comments about that? Yeah. No, no. Silly's fine. We take Silly here. We let Rick come in, so we allow Silly. It's fine. All right. So uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 11 through 15. So in your notes here... Uh, it states it pretty clearly. Israel's rejection is not permanent. Okay, it's not permanent. So I need a volunteer to read 11 through 15, if somebody wants to read. 11 through 15. Have a volunteer? Uh, Lance, great. I'll get you next time, Julie. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their full salvation has come unto the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now if all of them be the riches of the world, and a diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, insomuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh, I might save them of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Okay. So Paul has been speaking primarily to the Jews, right? And then you notice here in this passage, he actually says, okay, Gentiles, I'm speaking to you now. Now, note that it's not so much that he's changing the subject, but he's kind of bringing in how the Gentiles play into this picture and how maybe why God has allowed this type of what seems like a fall for the Jews to take place. But Paul starts off pretty quickly and says, hey, uh, have they stumbled that they should fall? And that fall would be this like permanent falling away. And he says, God forbid. So there's always this hint of grace, even in great warning and great uh, challenging verses that say, hey, be ready for this, be watching for this. There's always that hint of grace. And I've always loved reading the Gospels when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Do you ever notice that he's rebuking them in one breath? And then in the very next breath, he's offering them grace and saying, but if you would turn, if you would listen, if you would hear. So that's the same type of an idea here. A very serious warning. We ended last week saying that the first 10 verses carry a very heavy weight for the hearer, for the one listening to this. 
And I also kind of said that I think sometimes Christians or those in church can be kind of guilty of this. We sometimes can get insensitive to the things of God. We don't really give as much weight to the things of God or Scripture of God. Maybe because we've heard it so much. We've been in church so long. We've heard all the Bible stories, right? We grew up in church. We know all the Sunday school stories. And so it loses something. We're not quite as touched by it as we once were. It may not mean we're not saved. We could very much be saved, but just not in that close, intimate, connecting relationship with Christ like we once were. So the things of God have grown a little cold. And I've met many Christians who would say that. They say, hey, I know I'm saved. And I love Jesus. I've committed my life to him. But when I read the Bible, I get bored. Well, there's some different reasons why that could be happening, but I don't think it's because they're not a Christian. I think it's because they're human beings, and sometimes we just don't really give the full weight to Scripture like we should. This is why I think it's funny to me that someone can sit through a three-hour movie, right, or a sporting event that goes multiple hours, and yet 30 minutes in church and they're out. Now, someone would say, well, it's because they're sitting still, and exact, this isn't exactly entertainment up here, right? And I get that. But I remember being in Bible college. Because we're sitting in chapel. I'm sure Greg and anyone else that attended any kind of a Christian university or schooling can understand this. I remember sitting in chapel. And I just remember thinking, these pastors would come in from all over the place. And I'm going to do this with the rest of my life, right? Like, this is what I want to do. And I'm in a school with primarily pastoral majors, youth majors. So I expected them to sleep. And uh, missionary majors. Like, those that are going on missions. Just kidding, Greg. No, no hard feelings, okay? Um, but when you think, I look around chapel, and I remember kids would just be sitting there, like just so bored, doing homework for other classes, just disconnected, sleeping. And I remember thinking, this is, this is ridiculous. Like I remember showing up at the dorm after church on a Sunday, and I'm walking up on the floor to put my stuff in my room, and this guy comes out of his room in sleep, you know, sleeping pants and hair's all messed up, no shirt. I'm just kind of going to the bathroom. It's like, I don't know, 1 o'clock. I'm like, are you just getting up? Yeah. You're not feeling well? No, I'm fine. I was like, um, shouldn't you have been at church this morning? Ah, uh, I'll get it next week. This guy's going to school to be a pastor. And I, so, I looked right at him and I said, so is that what you're going to tell your people when they don't show up? Just be like, oh, just get me next week. Like, are you going to actually be like, well, we should be here. And that's what I mean. Like, there's times that every believer can get insensitive to the things of God. We have to be guarded against that. It used to just frustrate me to no end. And I know I'm not better than anyone. I had chapels where I was dragging, of course, and everything else. But I'm just saying, I said that before, when we get closer to Christ or we desire to be closer to Christ, when others aren't, it frustrates us. But we got to be careful because I can't judge them, right? i got to be careful that I'm guarded not to go down this road of judgment and con condemnation and just say, man, I need to be praying for them as they should be praying for me. So we can all fall into that trap of insensitivity. But with that warning comes grace. So let's look in the notes real quick. One of the greatest blessings of Israel's rejection is that salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's you and I, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? When you understand the Gospels and you read the Gospels, there's a point where he says, okay, you've rejected me, Israel. Now I'm going to the world. I'm going to the Gentiles. I've given it to you. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. We see this in the Gospels, the book of Acts, Right? We see the book of Acts kind of carries out this way. We covered that a long while ago. That you see it's originally kind of being presented to the Jewish nation. As they reject it, they start to travel abroad and preach to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul's missionary journeys, right? What did Paul do in every, almost every stop we read of? Where's the first place he went when he'd come to a new city? To the what? 
to the, uh, yeah, to the synagogue, okay, wherever the Jews were meeting. He'd preach the gospel there for a few days, maybe even longer if they were listening. They don't want it. They reject it. Then where did he go? He said, I'm going to the marketplace, right? I'm going out to the community. I'm going out to the Gentiles. So Paul exhibited the same kind of ministry mindset. He'd go to the Jews first and then move to the Gentiles. However, grace is always offered to the Jews. As a result of the Gentiles enjoying the presence of God, what does Paul say will happen? It will provoke the Jews to jealousy and lead them to repentance. This is not saying the nation of Israel will all be drawn through jealousy, but this is how the remnant will be is saved. Remember the remnant we talked about earlier? There's this group of Jews that God is going to see come to know Christ, that they are going to be saved. They already are being saved, right? Paul gives himself as an example. I was a Jew and I'm saved. I know Christ. So this is the idea. As the Jews are seeing the Gentiles enjoy the presence of God, and remember we talked about the table in uh, chapter 11, verse verse 9. It says, And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. That table that represents the, the blessing of God, the fellowship with God, the Gentiles are enjoying that. And what are the Jews feeling when they see this? These non-Jews enjoying the presence of God, talking about the things of God, praying, worshiping God. And they're over here kind of on the, on the sideline. Paul says, man, it's going to provoke them to jealousy. Wait, that's our God. We knew him long before you did. And Paul says that's one of the reasons God has allowed, not made. God didn't make the Jews reject Christ. They chose to reject Christ as a nation. So from that, now all of the world is hearing the gospel and being saved. Some have suggested that when Israel repents and turns to Christ as Messiah, there will be a tremendous revival in the world. The thought is, if Israel's rejection of Christ brought salvation to the Gentiles, then what would Israel's reception of Christ accomplish? Paul kind of alludes to that, doesn't he, in verse 15? It says, For if the casting away of them be that reconciling of the world, so what casting away of the Jews, now they're not really casted away permanently, right? He addressed that already too. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead. It's this idea of, man, if, if they rejected Christ and look at what it, happened, what it brought to the world, if they receive Christ, what the, what's that going to bring to the world? It's going to bring this revival many have suggested. Now we know, depending on how you view end times, we know that, we're going to talk about it a little bit too, that there will come a point where the Jewish nation, the Jews will be uh, receiving of Christ and there's going to be all this preaching of the gospel and there's going to be this great revival, I believe. Now, some of you may have a different worldview, or I mean a different end, uh, end times view than that. But obviously, Revelation talks about the 144,000 Jews, right, that are receiving Christ and then preach the gospel. I believe that's what people are alluding to when they say that that's what this could be referencing here. So Israel's rejection is not permanence, right? The beauty of grace is as long as I have breath in my lungs, there is repentance. There is a chance for repentance. Then we see in verse 16, a transition to including the Gentiles. So he talks a little bit about the Gentiles before that, and then in verses 16 through 24, we see a transition to including the Gentiles. So it's a lot of verses, uh, so maybe we'll do like 16 through 20, and then 21 through 24. So two volunteers, 16 through 20, 
If someone wants to read that for us, 16 through 20. Renee, and then 21 through 24. I'm going to pick Julie because she raised her hand earlier, and I said I'd get back to her. So, uh, so 16 through 20, Renee, and then 21 through 24, Julie. Verse 21 through 24, yeah? Okay, so lots of talk about branches and olive tree. Who are the natural branches? Israel, right? Who are the wild branches? Gentiles. How are we grafted in? Through faith, right? That's what he says, through belief, through faith. I like that the Bible says we were the wild ones, right? Just a wild olive tree out here. Not cultivated, not cared for, not nurtured. But this good olive tree has been nurtured, has been cared for, has been taken care of. And then this wild branch is grafted into a good tree. And what's produced? Good fruit, consistent fruit, right? But what is Paul's warning here? Paul transitions to speaking to the Gentiles and shares an illustration of the lump, right? Did you see that in the very beginning? Then he talks about first fruits, and then he talks about olive branches, so, the lump of dough, and I forget. Do you guys have this in your notes? The lump of dough and then a reference? Nobody's, okay, you guys are like, no, I don't know. That's fine. Uh, no, no, okay. So I had to, I tried to make it shorter paper. So, okay. So if you want to write this down, you can. Um, so we've got the lump of dough. That's referenced there in the very beginning in verse 16. It says, uh, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also Holy. And this is a reference to Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21. And the idea here is the first part of dough was offered to God to show the whole lump belonged to God. Numbers 15, verses 17 through 21. So the idea here again is the first part of the dough was offered to God as a symbol that the entire lump was offered to God. Now this is similar to us if we know the Bible, right? This idea of first fruits, okay? You bring the best of the best of your, a portion of your field, a portion of your uh, livestock, and you give this to God to represent what? God, everything you've blessed me with is really yours, so I'm giving back this first fruit to you. This is an idea that's familiar to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, this wouldn't necessarily fit. They would just kind of, well, why would we do that? We don't have to give that to God. 
And so Paul's kind of explaining this, but he's using this to illustrate that God is still involved in the nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel still has a very special place in God's hearts. Um, also, you see here the reference to the feast of the first fruits, uh, the idea when God accepts the part, he sanctifies the whole. When God accepts the part, he sanctifies the whole. Paul's point is that not only is Israel the first fruits in God's program of salvation, but the nation in which it is rooted. So, and this is a reference to John 4.22 as well. So we see here that this idea that this, the, the roots of salvation find themselves in the nation of Israel. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 22, you guys remember that verse? Basically it says, and I'm paraphrasing, it, it basically says salvation is of the Jews. Remember Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman? And she was saying, hey, where do we worship in this temple or over here on this mountain? What do we do? And, and he says, you worship what you know not. Salvation is of the Jews. What did he mean by that, that salvation was of the Jews? Does that mean I have to be a, a Jew to be saved? Does that mean I'm a Christian and then I get saved and then I have to follow the law? Okay, and in what way? How did salvation come through the Jews? Right, through the line of this promise way, way, way back in Genesis, right? Through the line of, first it was Adam and Eve, and then they had two children whose names were? And what happened to Cain and Abel? Okay, so then what did God do to replace? He sent Seth, right? So from the line of Seth, we see this line of promise all the way through the Old Testament. And then we get to Christ. And what Jesus was saying is the, the line of salvation, the way of salvation, the promise of salvation is coming from the Jews. And so you see here this idea of God connecting back the root of our salvation is in the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. However, Paul tells us that some of the branches of Israel have been broken off due to unbelief. Okay, have been broken off due to unbelief. Gentiles that are saved are considered new branches that are grafted in. But then Paul issues a warning to the Gentiles. Basically, he says, don't be filled with judgment or pride because now you are grafted in and they, the Jews, are broken off. Can you see what's happening here? Paul's saying, listen, don't get so cocky. Don't get so arrogant. You think, well, yeah, but look, we're, we're good branches. We've been grafted in and look at them. They've fallen away. We start to look down on the Jewish people because they've fallen away. Now, here's the truth. Right now in the world today, a Jewish person in their sin sitting in, the, in Israel, if they died in that state, they would go to hell. They get no special treatment because they're a Jew, right? Isn't that what Paul spent most of Romans explaining? Your lineage doesn't gain you anything with God in salvation. But what we do need to be careful of is that we honor and respect and realize, hey, listen, the only reason we even heard the gospel was because they rejected so now it was offered to us. So we need to be understanding of that, not judgmental of them. Uh, just as in the Old Testament, Jews became full of themselves. The church must be careful not to think that we are better than anyone because it is all by grace. A beautiful verse we must notice is verse 23. It says this, And they also, if they, uh, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So some people have tried to make this about um, the picture of salvation and loss of salvation or whatever. We can't do that because that's not what Paul's talking about, okay? He's kind of bringing up a different aspect of this. These aren't people that were saved, lost their salvation, and got saved again. He's saying, hey, listen, these Jews fell away in unbelief, right? They didn't believe in Christ. They weren't receiving a Christ. But if they don't persist in unbelief, 
And what's the end of that persistence? Death. If they don't abide in that and they turn and what? Have faith, then they can be grafted in again. And when a branch is grafted in, it can now produce fruit. It's usable, okay? It now will do what it was created to do. If they abide not in unbelief, God can graft them in again. This is our God. This is our God. He is always offering redemption and grace. And if someone makes the choice of faith in Christ, they can be grafted in. If they turn from their unbelief and put faith in God, they can be grafted in. When will they be grafted in? And who can be grafted in? We see this talked about in the next passage, uh, verses 25 through 32. The screen's off, so I have no idea what time. I'm just going to have a watch. I know what time it is. Okay. So 25 through 32. Uh, let's see here. We'll break it up again just a little bit. So 25 through 29. Volunteer for that. I know lots of reading tonight. Romans 11, 20. What did I say? 25 through 29. Matt, awesome. Thank you. And then, uh, so 30 through 32. Somebody that's willing to read. 30 through 32. Abby, thanks so much. Appreciate that. All right, Matt, go ahead. Nice and loud. Okay, so this is where the chapter starts to get kind of encouraging. We've turned that corner now. Uh, Paul reveals, quote, a mystery, which means something revealed that wasn't before fully revealed. Okay, so he's revealing something, even in parts, that wasn't before fully revealed. The spiritual blindness of Israel is to be understood as partial, not total, and temporary, not eternal. That means, as we alluded to in the very beginning, that apparently... This uh, insensitivity, this slumber, this blindness that's talked about in uh, chapter 11 early on, maybe in verses, where was it at here? Towards the end, like 7 through 10. Apparently, even though it sounds really harsh, as you read on, you realize it wasn't a permanent blindness, a permanent slumber. But where does the, the hinge fall there? When does it become temporary? When they choose to what? When the individuals say, okay, we'll turn, we'll believe. So even though it's temporary, we still see it's not all on God to just make them believe. There's a choice. They still have to put their faith and trust in Christ. Does this mean that all Jews will be saved apart from their personal faith? Because he sure sounds like, I mean, he says, listen, hey, they're all going to be saved. God's going to have mercy on them all. So does that mean that all Jews will be saved apart from their personal faith. Meaning, if a Jewish person says, I still reject Christ, I want nothing to do with Christ, God's going to go, nope, part of my plan, get in heaven, let's go. That's, it's it's going to happen. Okay, you got no choice in the matter. Of course not. Um, Israel here means the nation of Israel, not individual 
Jews. This distinction is important and is how the Jews <clears throat> understood the phrase all Israel. So the phrase all Israel is not saying every single Israelite individually. It's speaking in a broad sense. Israel as a whole, meaning part of them, the remnant, will be saved. So we're saying, referencing all of Israel, meaning a certain percentage, a certain number, a certain group of the Jews. Uh, the Mishnah, giving an example of this, the Mishnah says, quote, All Israel has a portion in the age to come. That's a quote from the Mishnah. All Israel has a portion in the age to come. Then it proceeds to immediately name the Israelites who have no portion in that age. So even in Jewish literature, Jewish understanding, which the Mishnah is kind of like a collection of works explaining some things to do with the law. So even in the Jewish literature, when they say all Israel has a portion in the age to come, but then instantly says, now here's all the Israelites that won't have a portion in that age. It sounds like a contradiction, but it's the phrase all Israel. It doesn't literally mean the entire nation individually. It's saying, okay, nationally this is offered, so all Israel or some will come to know Christ or receive Christ. Yes, yes. And I don't even know if I might have, do I allude to that here? I don't know if I do. I might not. I remember reading that in some sense. Yes, that's the idea that some believe that each tribe will be represented, a pers maybe a number from each tribe or something like that. The idea is that the nation of Israel will be represented. So all of Israel is represented, but it does not mean that every individual Jew, apart from their own personal decision, instantly gets into heaven just because they're an Israelite. Now, why would that be the case? What, what have we talked about that contradicts that idea that just because you're an Israelite, you get into heaven? Everything we've read in Romans so far, right? Doesn't he say it does no good to be circumcised or not? It does no good to be of the line of Abraham or not. There's no benefit there. There's no special blessing there. You are in Christ, saved, not in Christ, not saved. That's the key. Sandra. So the remnant we talked about last week, that there's going to be a portion of Israel that will come to know Christ. What some say this is referring to is that some of the Israelites in each tribe will come to know Christ. That would represent then all of Israel as a, as a symbol of that. But the remnant is that, yeah, the remnant of those who have received Christ is what we're talking about. All right. Uh, the Moody commentary. Um, and this, oh, I'm sorry, it's right here. I looked it over. I didn't even see that. Okay. I knew I read this somewhere. Uh, it's the Moody commentary that says it this way. All Israel refers to Jews from every tribe and every locale all over the world. So that's where I remember reading that then. So the Moody Commentary basically says, in their opinion, uh, they believe this is referencing to Jews from every tribe and every locale all over the world. Paul then seals the prophecy with a quote from Isaiah 59, 20-21 to show that this is not new. Again, God has always been about the redemption of Israel as he uh, is in the world. And so we see that here, this reference as it was going through there. Um, let's see here. Yes, towards the end of there, verse 20, 29, 30, talks about all these ideas of that God has revealed these things beforehand. Okay? Um, so any questions about that? I know it's kind of confusing when it says all Israel, and we think, oh, that means every Israelite. You have to think that this culturally and to the Jewish people, they would know that does not necessarily mean every single in individual Jewish person. All right, so in verses 30 through 32, we read those. Uh, we see 
Uh, remember, Paul is addressing the Gentiles, the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles that they have with one another. So again, he's kind of playing on this relationship. The Gentiles came to salvation through the unbelief of the Jews. The Jews will come to faith because of the belief of the Gentiles. And God desires to show mercy to all. All are undeserving sinners. So I love the way he kind of explains this. The Gentiles came to salvation through the unbelief of the Jews, right? They rejected Christ, so now the Gentiles hear the gospel. Because the Gentiles came to faith, the Jews will come to faith because of the belief of the Gentiles that provokes them to jealousy. And it ends with basically explaining that God desires to show mercy to all. Why? Because all Jews and Gentiles are undeserving sinners. So all of this results in praise to God. One more section of verses, and then we'll uh, open it up for any questions or comments. So one more, three verses, 33 through 36. One more volunteer, 33 through 36. Sandra. Okay, when I read this, I, I kind of imagine when he starts off there, he's basically saying, hey, some people in the audience might be doing what right now as they're hearing all this? They could be going, man, I don't know about this. This doesn't sound right. I don't know if I believe this. Is this what really God's going to do? And I love that he kind of wraps it up by talking about the power of God, the wisdom of God, the plan of God. I love that he says, hey, who, who has ever counseled God? And the answer is, who's counseled God? The answer is, No one, because he's God. Everyone else has been created by God. Therefore, how can something created counsel the one that created them? Right? Many of us pray this way, though, don't we? We pray sometimes trying to give counsel to God. We make it spiritual, but we basically are telling God what he should do and how he should do it. And if he doesn't do it this way, I'm not going to be happy with him. We counsel God. But Paul's saying, no one's ever given counsel to God. He is wise. He is beyond all wisdom. And he is going to do what he is going to do. And I've always loved that, how he ends this, because I kind of think, were there people in the audience that were just like, I don't know if I'd do it this way. This doesn't sound right. I don't know about this. And then he wraps it up by saying, basically, this is God's word. This is truth. All of this results in praise to God. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, we see two groups, Jew and Gentile. But one day, the Jews will be restored, and together we will celebrate the grace of God. I believe we are seeing this take place to some degree today when Jews come to Christ and are part of the body of Christ. So I, I kind of think this is letting us know, hey, one day we're all going to praise God this way. We're all going to be before his throne just worshiping him, both Jew and Gentile as one as the body of Christ. Uh, this, these verses of praise put all the glory and all the honor on God alone. It is his grace and plan of salvation that is being done in the world today. It's all about him. It's his plan. It's his wisdom. It's his knowledge. It's everything to do with him and what he's working out. Uh, In this chapter, we see a culmination of Romans 9 and 10, that God is not done with Israel, is working and, and is working an amazing plan. Obviously, there is debate to the finer points of when and how this restoration will take place, but we know it will. The restoration of Israel, the fact of that kind of coming to be, According to the passages we've kind of read through, apparently there's going to come a point where the time of the Gentiles will end. We know this to be true if you look at the rest of the 
book of Revelation. There will come a point where the age of the Gentiles will cease, and now God will begin to work again with Israel. And some have suggested, many have suggested, that that is when this restoration will begin to take place. When, when God has kind of fulfilled the time of the Gentiles, that time is fulfilled, and now God begins to work with the nation of Israel again as far as what we see in Revelation. But again, I encourage you with this. Not everyone who believes and follows Christ believes that. Some may think it's a different timing. Some may think it's already taken place. Um, some may think it's a different format than what Revelation lays out and what we would normally interpret it as. And so when I say there's finer points of debate there, have conversation, have, have discussion. It's good and healthy. But here's what we have to remember. The nation of Israel will be restored. There are Jews that have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And so for God, or it's all for God's glory, I should say. Uh, I want to encourage us all to step back and see that while there are things in Romans 11 that only apply to the nation of Israel, we can see the principle of God's saving grace and unrelenting love for his creation. There are things in Romans 11 that do not apply to the Gentiles. It just doesn't. It's not for us. There's warnings to the Gentiles. Hey, don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Don't look down on them. But really, that's really our involvement there. Our faith will provoke them to jealousy, and we need to be careful not to judge them if they're in unbelief. That's our involvement in Romans 11. And so I want to make sure we understand that there are aspects of this chapter that apply to the Jews, some that apply to us, and we need to take that into consideration as we look at this idea of restoring and restoration and all those things. That being said, any comments, questions, or thoughts as we wrap up Romans 11? I know we went through a lot of material tonight. I wanted to kind of finish this up before Father's Day. So we can kind of, because we won't have Sunday night on Father's Day, which is in two Sundays, right? So that way we'll be well done before that. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Two Sundays is Father's Day, and we, we won't have Sunday evening service that Sunday. So next week we'll kind of just get into something more general topical and then pick up Romans 12 after Father's Day. All right? Uh, any comments, questions, or thoughts? No? All right. Let's do this, guys. We'll go ahead and pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds and just continue to glorify him. Father, we thank you so much for just your wisdom and your knowledge. Lord, that you are over all of this. That we have no right to counsel you or to question you, but we trust in your wisdom and your sovereignty. Lord, we see a beautiful picture here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that you are not done with the nation of Israel, that you are sovereign over all things, that yet we as human beings have to, or we are allowed to, I guess I should say it that way, to make a free will choice to either receive Christ or reject Christ. And again, here in Romans 11, you remind your, the, your, your, your nation, the nation of Israel, that you are not done with them and that they do not need to abide in unbelief, but they can put their faith and trust in Christ and Lord, as you said, you are doing that to some degree, but there will come a day where you will restore the nation of Israel to a degree that we've never seen. And Father, I don't understand all the details of that. I know some spend countless hours reading and researching and studying and diagramming all of that. Lord, here's what I know. I, I trust you, and I know that you're doing a work, and I know that you will do a great work. And so, Father, help us, Lord, to be thankful for the grace that we've received, to look forward to sharing the gospel this week that with others that they can come to know Christ so that you could be glorified because it's all about you. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.